1: with Buddhist teacher and author, Pamela Weiss. Pamela is among the few Buddhist teachers authorized to teach in two traditions, Zen and Theravada. She's the only lay person in the Suzuki Roshi Soto Zen lineage to receive full Dharma transmission. After living as a monastic at Tassahara Zen Mountain Monastery for five years, she completed comprehensive training through Spirit Rock Meditation Center to become an insight meditation teacher. She's currently a member of the Spirit Rock Teacher Council and a guiding teacher at San Francisco Insight. In addition, Pamela is an executive coach, entrepreneur, and pioneer in bringing Buddhist principles and practices into the workplace. And in 2020, Pamela released her first book, A Bigger Sky, Awakening a Fierce Feminine Buddhism. Welcome to the podcast, Pamela.
2: Thanks, Sharon.
1: Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. And where are you? Where are you recording from?
2: I am in uh, cold and foggy San Francisco.
1: I'm curious about uh, San Francisco Insight. Have you been meeting in person or only virtually in this last period of time?
2: Oh, only virtually. And I Mm -hmm. think our board just decided only virtual through the end of the year. So, Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. It's been quite a time. When in 2020 did your book come out?
2: It came out in July. This July, it'll be a year that it's been Mm -hmm, out. Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. It got a little delay um, because of COVID, and it was an odd time to have a book come out.
1: (laughs) It's a very odd time. We'll get to that for sure. (laughs) Um, uh, But to begin with, you've been a practitioner of meditation for a very long time. Both in the Zen tradition and Theravada Buddhism, and tell me what brought you to the path.
2: Yeah, it is. Um, you know, the, my book is predominantly memoir, um, mm-hmm. and so a bunch of that story I tell in the book, and probably the one of the most important events that led me to practice. Was um, being diagnosed with a chronic illness when I was 11. Mm-hmm. So I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at 11 and came pretty much face to face with what I didn't know this language at the time, but with old age sickness and death, mm-hmm. and had so little way to understand or make peace with, I suppose, uh, what that meant and. Why me? And uh, all of those questions that were sort of foisted upon me as a as a young person.
1: And when did you actually encounter uh, a teacher?
2: You know, I came. Um, I came into meditation practice uh, a year or so after college, and um, I actually had had a, a boyfriend who started doing meditation and ended up going off and joining the um, Rajneesh mm-hmm. folks. And when he left to do that, he left me as well. And I was not so interested in meditation when he was around, but when he left, it kind of piqued my interest. And mm-hmm. so I went, I literally at the time, I looked at an, I looked up meditation in the Yellow Pages.
1: Oh, have fun! <laughs> yeah,
2: and eventually found my way to San Francisco Zen Center. Well,
1: that's a good thing. Uh, was it under S or under Z?
2: <laughs> <laughs> how
1: many places did you have to look at before you you came I'm to not, that?
2: I'm not. I think th- to be honest, I think that I actually found out about meditating by going. So funny, so long ago, I went to a local futon shop to buy a meditation cushion, um, which I probably saw sitting in a window. And I went in and I bought the cushion and I asked some questions and someone there directed me to, you know, here's a place you can go and actually learn more live Mm -hmm. because I had been reading books, you know? Yeah. Yeah,
1: funny. Do you still feel closely connected to each tradition, the... Zen tradition and Theravadan Buddhism, which I should say for people who may not be familiar with the word, is the Southern school of Buddhism. And these days it's really referring to insulate meditation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I have to say that Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a a foot pretty firmly in both traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that some people feel strongly that it's really important to Tease them apart and make sure that they're clear and distinct. And for me, that's just not the case. You know, they're pretty intertwined in my in my body. You know, mm-hmm. um, and there's a way in which I feel like the my roots are very much in Zen because that's where I started, mm-hmm. um, and I feel really happy to have extended into also learning insight meditation because it kind of kept me from being overzealous, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. and I feel like it really stretched and opened me in a way that, um, I'm happy for, um, and, you know, in some ways I feel like being into traditions can be kind of confusing. Um, on the other hand, I feel like it gives me a kind of perspective, um, and it mm-hmm. helps me see some of the through lines um, at what I think of as really the heart or the essential parts of the the teachings.
1: Fabulous. So let's talk about your book. And <laughs> um, Wasn't it nice when I got to introduce you as an author? Totally. Author, Pamela Weiss. <laughs> it's great. So it is uh, a mix. Your book is a mix of your personal journey, as you said, a memoir and the history of some unheard voices of Buddhism in the East. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering as you wrote it, did you have a particular reader in mind as you wrote it through uh, the process? Sometimes I feel like I'm doing that. And sometimes as one of my writing coaches told me in her opinion, we write the book we wish we could have read ourselves.
2: Uh, For me, that hits it right on the nose. Um, And in a very particular way, I... I felt like I really wished for Dharma teachings that were much, much more personal. Mm -hmm. And I have to do a little shout out here, Sharon, because um, one of your early books that I don't know if it gets a lot of press anymore, but the book that you wrote about faith. Yeah, yeah that was a really important book for me and was in some ways a kind of model of how impactful the teachings can be when they're told through a very personal lens and so i wanted more of that um that was the that was the book i wanted to read more of was hearing what's it really like for people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not just what the kind of theory is or the instructions are mm-hmm. like that yeah
1: that's great. Yes. Thank you. It, it was, let's see, how old am I now? It came out on my 50th birthday. It was like hmm. 18 years ago hmm. that book came out. And uh, it was difficult to write in so many hmm. ways, as you can imagine. And maybe hmm. we can talk about that as well in terms of your process. But it was very important for me. Hmm. And and you're right. I mean, some of what you or I experience um, in part is also you know, like, I, I've never had a Western teacher. I've only had Asian teachers. Mm. And there is a certain decorum sometimes mm-hmm. in the culture about uh, self-disclosure that isn't is mm-hmm. isn't really done that much. And mm-hmm. I remember once when Saida Upandita, who was my Burmese teacher, was here in Barry um, teaching this three-month retreat, which was the first time we'd ever met him. And was 1984 we'd brought him over because we'd heard he was really wonderful teacher which he was but Mm. um he uh one day in the meditation hall he said and I had doubt once too and we all kind of like sat up like (laughs) you know and then he said I gave myself a stern talking to and it went away that was it you know (laughs) and I was like wait a minute you know I'm struggling here and uh, Mm. I also remember um years, uh, before then, when, uh, we heard this other great Burmese meditation master, Tampu Saida, was visiting the States and we invited him to come here and, and he was totally lovely. And, uh, we made a big deal out of all these public announcements. You know, we have a, a great, uh, master coming to teach and we had a public mm. talk and, all these people came in and he was really traditional in that um in the uh monastic system the the monks have a fan like a oh yeah you know and yeah. in the olden days they would hold the fan up in front of their face because
2: mm-hmm.
1: it wasn't supposed to be a person speaking it was right the voice of the dharma you know and right. and uh So he did that, and I could see like all these people that we'd invited. You know, were like totally confused. They could not see him. They could not get a read of like you know, was he smiling? Was he you know like yeah? You know, it was it was very interesting, and it it just was uh, very uncomfortable for a lot of people.
2: Mm. Yeah, i i I have a a more a more recent story, which is some years ago. Uh, when I was going through teacher training for through Spirit Rock, there was a one of the senior teachers came in to do a session with the trainees and essentially said, you know, you shouldn't really share personal stories except mm-hmm. to kind of, what did he say? Like, except for mule stories, <laughs> by what? which he meant stories in which you're making fun of yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you're sort of, making a joke. And I just then as now I just completely disagree mm-hmm. because of the reason you said earlier which is that I myself was so hungry to hear the human side of of the teachings and the impact of the teachings. Um, and that's it's still true that I like it to hear it from other people and more and more I see the impact of how kind of door-opening or tenderizing it is for people to hear about the Dharma in a very personal way. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah well, because, of course, we live it personally, you know.
2: It's, exactly. It's not something happening over there
1: <laughs> yeah, at all. No. Yeah, it's very yeah. true. And I'm curious how the exploration about Buddhism and the role women have played in it was sparked for you and how to evolve into book form.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the style in which I wrote and my wish to bring forward, a, for lack of a better word, it's a tricky word to use, but a more feminine expression of mm-hmm. the Dharma, mm-hmm. those, were, those were hand in glove, you know. I I was writing a very personal story, and that was in part a way of expressing a more feminine, personal, intimate version of the teachings. And, you know, I talk about in my book when I was a youngish Zen student. Um, in, the, in the Zen tradition, there's this beautiful practice of reciting the names of the lineage um, that go back and back and back from actually before Buddha through Buddha, through the Indian ancestors, the Chinese ancestors, the Japanese ancestors, in this case, all the way down through Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, who founded San Francisco Zen Center. And I loved that practice. Mm. You know, it was one of just deep gratitude, appreciation, reverence, and really feeling the support for me was how I felt it of all of these human beings, these real people who went back and back and back and back. And some years after I had left the monastery, I came back for a visit and I was surprised to hear someone announce a a second morning chant after we had recited the names of the lineage holders, which was a recitation of the names of the women ancestors. And it was so vivid for me because I had, I had um, the male ancestors were committed to memory. I knew them by heart, but I didn't know the names of the women at all. And I couldn't find the page in the book, you know, the Mm -hmm. the chant book I went flapping through. And finally I just closed the book and sat there and listened to the names of these women who I didn't know anything about. And when the chant ended, I just burst into tears. Mm. And I I feel like that's what it was like. Like I didn't even know what I was missing. It didn't, I didn't have any feeling that my training was skewed in some way or that I was treated lesser because I was a woman. And all of the leadership of Zen Center at that time was basically all run by women. Mm -hmm. But still, here at the center of the practice, there Mm -hmm. had been this big missing piece. So I think that was an early seed that was planted. Um, And much later, uh, I made friends with uh, a couple of the Theravad nuns, the bhikkhunis Mm in current current time, who had moved to San Francisco from the UK. And when I got to know them and spend time with them and hear their stories, I was, you know, frankly appalled Mm -hmm. at the bias um, that they were still up against. And I was also kind of shocked that nobody knew their story. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the vows I made to myself in writing the book was that I wanted to tell my own story, but I also wanted to tell their story, which Mm -hmm. I, which I did in the context of writing.
1: It's so interesting. I remember, um, visiting, uh, that monastery in England, you know, which is, um, supported largely I think by Thai people Thai mm-hmm. national people and uh, yet Ron the abbot uh, is a westerner and and uh, so they're kind of in between worlds as well it's very interesting and and mm-hmm. uh, the um, protocol around say a meal is usually the monks go up and eat and then then uh, I get you know they serve food to themselves and then uh, having been offered in general and then the nuns and then the laymen and then the laywomen. And I was there with uh, my goddaughter who was sort of a little girl at the time and her even younger sister. Her sister was quite young and mm-hmm. uh, we had made the offering of the meal um, to the whole community and uh, we were sitting there kind of waiting our turn and at one point, the littlest girl, you know, the, the, the younger sister, screams out, how come the girls are going second? Which was really <laughs> a moment, you know, it was a moment in time. It was very funny.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it it points to uh, thousands of years of bias mm-hmm. that are baked into the tradition that, you know, as my, my initial story conveys, I, I didn't even know. You know, it sort of was just the water I was swimming in. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to start to wake up to realize, you know, in a a way, like, wait, where are the women? You know, where are the women's voices? Where are the women's perspectives? And for me, it's really interesting that the Buddha was very clear about creating a fourfold sangha, which is what you just spoke to, Mm -hmm. which is monks, nuns, lay men, lay women right? And yet the voices of women were not, there's not much, you know, we have the Therigata, the stories of the awakened women nuns. So we know there were women around, but in the Pali Canon, women's voices are basically written out. There's so little that's there. And it, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, nothing was written down for about 500 years after the mm-hmm. Buddha. death. Mm-hmm. So I imagine there was quite a bit that was lost, you know, in those women's stories and teachings and perspectives that I hope that as we get interested in them, that can begin to come back in and kind of make the shape of the practice itself more whole, is how I think of it.
1: Is that why you uh, fictionalized some female figures in the Dharma, like the Buddha's mother and aunt and wife? Was it um, the need to create them anew?
2: Exactly. I mean, I I told the story of the life of the Buddha, which I have always found very interesting and inspiring, Um, again, from the perspective of that human side. You know, mostly we hear about the Buddha's teachings, but I was really interested in the Buddha as a person. And so I told the story of his awakening, which many of us have heard many times through the eyes of the women in his life. And the reason that I fictionalized it was because I couldn't find anything about them. Mm -hmm. There was so little. And so I just thought, okay, let me immerse myself in the history as best I can, learn everything I can. And then it was one of the most enjoyable parts of the writing for me was that I kind of immersed myself in their lives and then let something come through me that, you know, wasn't really their voices. It was my voice, but it Mm -hmm. was my voice inspired by them. Yeah. Well,
1: it's interesting, you know, because um, I spend so much of my life in teaching
2: Mm -hmm.
1: with people who are, practicing in the insight meditation community and they don't necessarily think about Buddhism at all. You know, mm-hmm. they don't think about the history. They don't think about the structures. They don't think about the forms. They're, um, you know, passionately interested perhaps in the meditation and, in you know, I don't mean to limit it to just a, a mental technique. You know, they're interested in a lifestyle of, Mm -hmm. Uh, compassion, you know, so it's like a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It just doesn't, it doesn't have that affinity for the structures, the forms, the history of Buddhism. And uh, that's the first thing I'm curious about asking you, like, do you think that one can even decontextualize, is it even possible to decontextualize the meditation from the historical and Philosophical context from which it evolved.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, can we? Yes, I mean, I, I, it's what's happening, <laughs> right? Yeah, that it's been kind of lifted up and out of the history and the context and offered as a, you know, very potent tool, a, a meditative practice, and even even in the wider context, the the practices of kindness, of ethics, of all of that. So can we do it? Yes. For me, the question is what gets left out, you know, or what do Mm -hmm. we miss? And I think maybe the most important point for me is that if we don't take a look at the historical context from which it comes, then the kinds of assumptions and biases that may be built into it will just continue. Mm -hmm. So until we see where it comes from, we are kind of, what do they say about, you know, those who don't learn the history are doomed to repeat it. It's Mm -hmm. in that spirit that I'm speaking. And so I think a combination of that plus, you know, just a little bit, especially in the U.S. where there's a, can be a kind of Schmorgasbord attitude of, I'm just going to take the parts that I like Mm -hmm. and leave the rest. And there's some goodness in that, but there's also some danger that we might only go for what's easy or what feels within reach. And as much as I have a deep um, affinity for the human side of the teachings, there is also the side of the teachings that are pointing us towards something bigger than ourself.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so that's what I think, some of that I think is what can get lost if we don't sort of flesh out literally our, our understanding of the context out of which the teachings come.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of what I really ponder a lot, you know, is like, because uh, I think a lot of people would offer that decontextualization as a corrective. You know mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, you know the Buddha uh, had some teachings. You know that were um, kind of highly adaptable in a way. You know mm-hmm. ethics and uh, generosity and meditation and and so on. So couldn't you just focus on that and not even uh, consider? I'm not sure. You know, like it's. It's just an interesting question. Not I, consider I, the history. Does that free you? Or is that, as you say, just laying the grounds for?
2: Or does it trap you? Because mm-hmm. I I do think that there are parts of the teachings that are less about the essence of the teaching and are just cultural overlay. Mm-hmm. But if we don't know the history, if we don't mm-hmm. know the context, then we don't know what we're we're kind of, um, blindly taking in Mm -hmm. or, um, unconsciously throwing out, you know, it's sort of a willy nilly process. So if we want to be thoughtful, careful about, um, shaping and reshaping the teachings, then I think we want to be careful about, or respectful maybe is a better word, about understanding what it comes out of the ground from which it grows you know
0: mhm
1: some of my um feeling you know and and in my uh, interest in teaching the way that i do largely uh actually comes from my first teacher who was sn goenka
2: mm.
1: which was 7 million years ago in india uh in the form of an intensive 10 day retreat that's how he taught and and the first night of my first retreat, uh, Gawenka said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. And mm. so this is totally open to anybody, and it's not about becoming a Buddhist. And, and so this is like the first night, and, and uh, therefore very influential in, as a foundational mm. teaching for me. And it extrapolated as I had more teachers and, and spent more time absorbing the teachings, um, realizing that I was a laywoman, I was a Westerner in a tradition, and I felt, just like you said, I felt really equal access to the teachings. I felt
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, highly respected by my own teachers from the beginning, but I also saw that I was kind of a free agent, you know, and that if I were to become a nun, if I were to, in effect, join um the institution, my life would be very different from the life of a monk. And so that, in a way, was um, kind of a risk. And I, I didn't really want to become a nun, you know, in, in many ways. But uh, one of the appealing things, of course, in that tradition is that you can ordain for a temporary period of time. It's not like a right. disgrace, you know, if you decide it's not a lifetime Uh, practice for you. But, um, you know, so maybe I had a little bit of an interest like, Oh, that would be kind of cool to do some time for Mm. a month, you know, but uh, I didn't want to live my life within that network. And uh, I see that as kind of representative of the choice that I was just talking about, you know, to um, not uh, undertake an identification Mm-hmm. with the entire institution and right. i've never looked back from that
2: right well i i'm totally with you in the understanding that Buddh- buddhism is not about an in- it's not it didn't come from an institution and it wasn't it didn't intend to build institutions and whenever we build institutions this is just me <laughs> Baldly stating my bias, but yeah. I think institutions are have trouble. you know, they have all kinds of biases mm-hmm. and so on built into them. And the the Buddha was a social revolutionary mm-hmm. as much as anything. And so there is a way in which I think that what you're saying, which is that the power of these teachings can be, uh, brought into our life in the world mm-hmm. um, in so many ways that are really useful. and I think we need to be careful i mean i don't I don't feel that you need to be careful so much as mm-hmm. someone who spent time with all of these teachers who are deeply rooted in the tradition over decades. Mm-hmm. But I think that w- in as a culture, as an American culture, we need to be careful about sort of um, you know, just taking the stuff we like and leaving the rest, Mm -hmm. because we we risk missing the depth of it. We risk missing the really uh, deeply enriching parts of the practice. Um, But it's it's true in my own life within the Zen tradition. In that tradition, the the divide is not so much based on gender, um, but there is a there is a lay priest divide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in my case, I decided not to become a priest, which is kind of like graduate school or something mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. Soto Zen tradition. And as a result of that, I bumped up against this bias toward, you know, sort of the same as um, monk, nun or lay person. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like there's a huge need for mm, exploring and expanding the question of what is it, what does it mean, or e- even is it possible to wake up when one is fully engaged in the life of the world? Mm-hmm. And I hope so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> That's a good and hope. It,
2: and it's really a question that I'm I'm deeply committed to. Not, not so much finding an answer to, but in being in an ongoing going exploration. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like it's what our world needs so much now. Our mm-hmm. um, people who have the, the depth of understanding who we are and our relationship to each other in the world, that have this ethical backbone, have the orientation toward connection and kindness... Um, who are not withdrawn from the world but are stepping in because, you know, we're in some deep trouble right now mm-hmm. um, and we need help. Um, and I, I feel like these teachings have so much to offer in that regard.
1: Um, that's very beautiful. And But let's go back to the nuns for a moment, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, which is a little bit different than um, – what we were just talking about, because as you say, there, you know, historically there's this giant gap where um, uh, female monastics were um, kind of relegated within Buddhism, uh, certainly within Theravada Buddhism to a a much lesser role and Mm. uh, were not considered fully ordained. And then there's been a movement for full ordination and, uh, kind of equality in that sense, and um, you know, to some extent in Asia, to some extent in the West, and and there are these Western Theravadan nuns attempting to live that full monastic life, and mm-hmm. not some lesser form. But one of the kind of characteristics within that tradition of a, a monastic life is lay involvement you know like the buddha had some rule about going out on alms round every single day you don't like
2: mm-hmm.
1: you don't have like canned goods you know waiting <laughs> in case you have like a bad day or you hit a, a bad cook or something like that you know you don't have a pantry and right. uh, it's like every single day your survival depends on the generosity of the lay people just as your um Duty, your responsibility is to practice, is to live a life geared toward liberation. And so it's, it's a, it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what happened, I think, um, for a lot of people in the West, because it's an unfamiliar kind of relationship to us, is that, you know, I saw people championing the, the independence, uh, and the movement of the nuns, but not, understanding like, well, maybe it's up to us to support them, Mm -hmm. you know, because they're not going to, it's not like Catholic nuns who may become school teachers or, you know, uh, have a job. It's like, that's what being a fully ordained monastic in that tradition means. Your job is, is liberation. And, and you're not going to have stored goods. You're not going to have a pantry. You're not going to have an occupation where you're making money. Um, you are dependent on the care of the lay people. And, and that really struck me at the time, you know, wishing mm-hmm. that uh, we would all come forth if we really were supportive of, their, of the idea of these women being fully ordained and fulfill the other half of the bargain. So I don't know what you think about
2: that. Well, that's why I think it's so important that their stories are known. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, so many people I know first don't even know that there are nuns, Theravada nuns, like mm-hmm. active, <laughs> at this point, fully mm-hmm. ordained, bhikkhuni, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. women living this life. Um, and then if they do know, I think they rarely understand that these women are not underwritten, as it were,
0: mm-hmm.
2: in the same way that the monks are.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so... Just there's a there's a piece of making them more visible, not in a you know marquee, bright lights kind of way, but mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. they're invisible for many, many people,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and they're doing something that I, I, I think is really important. They're mm-hmm. upholding one thread of the fourfold sangha, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and as you said, that that fourfold sangha is meant to be interwoven, mm-hmm. right, interdependent. Um, and so, yeah, we have a ways to go in just having people even know that they're there. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah.
1: So do you have thoughts about, I mean, there's your book and, and about having those stories more out there, more known?
2: Well, it's funny because the, I'm, I'm actually in the midst, I'm almost one year through a two year writing program in, um fiction, (laughs) which is Mm -hmm. such a stretch for me. Um, and I, after writing the first book that I wrote, I'm picked up this possibility of writing a fictional account of one of the early Buddhist nuns. Mm -hmm. And so again, for me, that's a little bit different than telling the story of the current time nuns, Mm -hmm. but it's a way of, by going backward in time and kind of pulling out the voices that were lost um, and, in a way, trying to recreate what their lives might have been like, which is often women are so relegated to sort of second class Mm -hmm. um, in the way that it is now. But I don't know that that's the way it was then, you know? that They may have come in in the 500-year-later gap when the male monastics wrote down the teachings. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how I'm kind of picking that thread up in my own life and both struggling with it. You know, as you said earlier, there's, when you write a story, whether it's a personal story or a story about things that are happening that matter to you, it, it's a, it's a process, right? There's an emotional kind of unpacking that happens um, that I find very useful. So that's the, that's the piece of it that is alive for me Uh
1: now.
0: Uh
1: Let me go back for a moment and ask about writing a memoir, you know, which I said was very difficult for me. Mm. Um, What was your process like just putting all that out there? Mm.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, I have to just say a little funny piece, which is that when I first I, I first started writing memoir, in I was part of some writing groups. And then I got serious about it after my husband was in a mm-hmm. serious bicycle accident. And I joined a group and in a way began to kind of write my way out of the residual trauma and mm-hmm. fatigue mm-hmm. and so on that I had been through and that was when I started to see oh this is its own process for revelation really in a way and that was those were the seeds that were sown for me but I when I first started writing memoir I had this sort of not very skillful idea that the way that I would present myself was as very shiny and polished and put together mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it didn't take very long for me to p- submit some pieces of writing where people kindly were able to say to me, you know, this is terrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is terrible writing and nobody wants to read a story about how great you are. Yeah, yeah. And so the the process of really being vulnerable,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: on the page and in public in that way was um, it was very freeing in a way. Um and frightening, both.
0: hmm It
1: yeah. sort of reminded me of um when I wrote Faith, uh I had a freelance editor who was usually helpful for me and as well as several coaches and people helping me out. And um with the freelance editor once, she said to me, What I I guess I was starting out by saying that in many ways within Buddhism, doubt and especially the right kind of doubt is not considered an enemy to faith that we need to question and wonder and investigate and see for ourselves and kind of insist that we can see for ourselves Hmm. what is true. And that, that kind of doubt or questioning is, is really something that really is an enhancement to faith. And so she said to me, well, what's the opposite of faith then? And I, I, had one of those experiences, you know, where words just come out of your mouth. And what I said was despair. I think despair is the opposite of faith. And she said to me, well, now you're going to have to write a chapter on despair. And I said, I don't really want to. (laughs) I think not. Let's skip that one, you know. And ultimately I did because she, of course, was correct. But uh, it was not easy. So,
2: Yeah, I had a very similar experience, Sharon, when I I wrote what I – You know, you work so hard when you're writing. And I finally got a draft of something, which I was a new enough writer to to not understand yet that it was still a shitty first draft. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I gave it to a dear friend of mine who's a, a longtime editor and developmental editor. And she knows me really, really well. And she knows my story. And one of the first things she said to me was, this is okay, but... You left a bunch of really important parts out. Mm. And she said, you need to tell this story and this story. And I just like you, I was like, no. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, think so. <laughs> I don't want to tell those stories, you know. And of course she was right. You know, those yeah. were essential parts of being honest, really. So it's um, it's the, the the flip side of the hard part of it for me was that. This may be a bit of a subtle point. I don't know. But I found that, you know, when we, the way the mind works is that my mind works, I'll say, is that my history gets kind of clumped into story boxes. Mm-hmm. And by going back in time and really reimmersing myself in some key moments in my history, they got kind of unboxed, mm-hmm. meaning, the, the stories themselves were no longer, you know, something I could sort of tie up in a bow and put on a shelf. Yeah. I, I relived them. And in many ways, the, the complexity and um, nonlinear, it wasn't just like, oh, it was good or it was bad, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I was happy or I was sad. I was like, oh, there's, there were all of these dimensions of what was going on. And that was really um, wonderful, actually. It was yeah, like breathing fantastic. fresh air into my history. You know, yeah,
1: yeah that's yeah. wonderful and beautifully put. I also found there was a kind of magic to the process because I was writing about my life and, um, you know, my first teacher, for example, was S.N. Goenka, and at that point, like okay, I maybe hadn't seen him in twenty years or something like that, and. I had gone on, had a number of other teachers, including a woman, Deepama, who was very important for me. And and then I was right on that chapter of writing about my first retreat, like going to India, having my first retreat, meeting Goenka when I got a message like, oh, he's coming to Massachusetts. He'd like to see you. And I thought, wow. really? Did I like pull that in? Or writing about wow. high school and I get some message somehow from somebody saying, are you the Sharon Salzberg? I went to high school with. And I thought, oh, Mm -hmm. this is like so eerie, you know, like.
2: Yeah. The past is still here, right? Yeah. And it's rushing to meet me because I'm thinking
1: of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So I want to ask, since you're a part of a number of communities today that are looking at issues of diversity and equity and inclusion. um, And as you say, you know, we live in a time which is, so uh, on the edge in so many ways. I'm curious about what you feel the next steps look like in terms of moving forward.
2: Hmm. Yeah. You know, I I do, there's a chapter in my book that I talk about the last, mm, it's been about 15 years now that I've spent um, engaged in these women's circles Mm -hmm. that are addressing race and racism. And I, I feel like that process has been on par with my meditation practice in both kind of cracking me open to see things that Mm -hmm. new ways and also just heartbreaking in the best way, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of excruciating, but also totally tenderizing. And so my, my, experience, my personal experience has been very much through intimate relationships. Um, but I feel like, I mean, there are, there are certainly the institutions that we are, we were both referring to before are, are putting some of the groundwork in place to begin to address these things, mm-hmm. but it's very young still. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, in a way, I think at least around race and racism that the the onus of responsibility is on the white folks mm-hmm. to, to look both deeply internally and see the kinds of invisible blind vi- biases that we may be carrying, that we are carrying because we live in a racist culture, um, to begin to see you know, for me, the thing that really broke my heart was when I built these relationships and sort of fell in love with these other women Mm. in my circle. We, it was, these were mixed groups and then was, had to be kind of bonked on the head to realize that, you know, the women of color who were my dear sisters, they lived in a different world than Mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. And that was heartbreaking for me. When, when that finally kind of got through my thick skull. And I think that kind of heartbreak is really important. Um, and that, I think, for white folks means both looking internally, but also extending out and really stretching into stepping outside the Cultural norms and assumptions that Mm -hmm. um, some of us may be used to traveling within. Um, So I don't know if I'm answering the question. It's a it's a really important and complex question. I think
1: it's interesting because you know um, the conversation is different than it was ten years ago and. Mm Uh, Maybe even a few years ago, and um, just sort of seeing where things are going. And uh, the fact that it's so widespread in a way, I mean, it may not be deep enough and it may not be (laughs) wide enough, but um, I think about, um, you know, certainly uh, retreat centers, but also theater and Mm. uh, uh, all kinds of arenas, literature. Uh, mm-hmm. Publishing, you know, where people are saying, in effect, your question, like which voices, you know,
2: exactly, and exactly. and
1: what are the other stories, and and so on. So it's it's a really interesting time too in that way.
2: And I I think for the the f- people who are in the more dominant culture, whether it's mm-hmm. men or white folks or straight folks, then the The it can feel threatening to have those other voices come Mm -hmm. in because they're unfamiliar. But the flip side of that, and and this has been my experience specifically in the Dharma realm, Mm -hmm. is that without that diversity of voices, the teachings themselves end up feeling very flat Mm -hmm. and not that interesting, actually. But the richness that comes in with this Like literally this diversity of voices, people speaking out of often a more personal experience and very different personal experiences than, you know, the one I grew up with, that is so rich. Um, So if there can be a hunger for that deepening and enriching aspect of the diversification of these communities, I think that will go a long way to... Um, opening people's hearts, you know, and stripping the fear and instead bringing in a sense of like, oh, there's so much more for me to learn about and see Mm -hmm. and understand something like that.
1: Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Well, thank you for this conversation. And, um, wondering if, uh, to close this conversation today, would you lead us in a guided meditation?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I'll just say before I begin that I'm going to want to orient, we'll do a short guided uh, practice, really calling on some of the qualities that um, I think of as the feminine. And I don't mean that related to gender. It's really the masculine and feminine show up in all genders but the feminine as some of the parts of the, or the dimension of the practice that has been in some ways left out or, or made less than. So please make yourself comfortable to begin sitting or standing or lying down. Finding a way to sit, that allows the body to feel a sense of ease. Maybe taking a few deep, full breaths. Allowing the awareness, the connection with the breath, and the sensations of the breath in the body to help you, me, all of us arrive to be here, right where we are. And for this short stretch of time, remembering, understanding that we don't need to go anywhere else. We don't need to be doing anything. We don't need to be trying to become someone. Keeping it very simple, bringing an attitude of openness, of allowing, of receptivity, How is it to be with whatever's here, sounds or sensations, thoughts or feelings? How is it to meet our experience with kindness? with tenderness, with care and compassion. Some of our experience is pleasant, some is unpleasant. Can we allow ourselves to be the ground that holds it all? And as you begin to settle, to arrive, receiving whatever's here, whatever's true for you now, Taking a moment to imagine that you could literally breathe in and out of the heart, or the heart center, an area at the center of the chest. And as you breathe in, breathing in your own care and well-wishing. Imagining with each in-breath, you could fill the whole body with kindness, with care and compassion towards yourself. Taking in your own well wishes as best you can. And continuing to breathe in through the heart. On the next exhale, extending out, sending out these same care and well wishing. kindness and compassion, any of the friends, family, loved ones in your own network or web or circle, and sending them your care and kindness, your well-wishing. And finally, imagining that you, along with all of the others who may be listening to this podcast, that all of our collective kindness and care could move out, could be extended out in wider and wider circles. Like a stone dropped into a pond, waves of kindness and care spilling out in all directions, touching the lives of the many, many beings, known and unknown, seen and unseen. all across our wide, aching world. And as you're ready, feeling the weight of the body seated, planted, rooted here, now. And keeping the heart open, tender, spacious. As you let your eyes open and taking a look around, coming back into the room or wherever you may be sitting or standing. Knowing that these qualities of receptivity and openness, of kindness and care, are always here always available when you sit when you practice meditation and and when you move through the world
1: well thank you so much for that beautiful beautiful meditation and uh for joining me today. And to learn more about Pamela's work, you can visit her website at www.pamelaweiss.com It's P-A-M-E-L-A-W-E-I-S-S dot And remember her book, which is called A Bigger Sky: Awakening of Fierce Feminine Buddhism. A big thank you to everybody listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy. And may you live with
0: ease. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at sharonsalzburg.com.